Hey guys, so this is going to be a little bonus episode for you. It's not very much paranormal. What is paranormal is in the very beginning of it, though. But what I've got is John Scott, who is a great friend of Tom Petty. As a matter of fact, as you're getting ready to hear in a second, Tom Petty in his very last concert a week before he died gave John Scott most of the credit for them even becoming a band. And we're going to get into that uh, as we get into the story a little bit. But John Scott has a book out called Tom Petty and Me. It's basically 40 years of their life together. And um, like I said, they were they were great friends. He's got a lot of good stories about Tom, but also some other musicians. This guy was involved with John Cougar Mellencamp. He was involved with Leonard Skinner, uh, so many other bands out there, The Who. And uh, he's got a ton of stories as he's going to tell us later on down the road. He's got some uh, Keith Moon stories and stuff like that for The Who. So if you're a big music fan, this is an episode for you. If you're not, uh, maybe, you know, it's still some funny stories. You might like it. There, but so there is a little bit of paranormal. Like I said, it's at the very beginning of the show. But first, I want you to hear this uh, little clip from, from Tom Petty at his last concert so you'll know a little bit about how he felt about John Scott. One friend in particular I, I want to dedicate this next song to is a guy named John Scott. You don't know him, but... Six weeks before our first record was dropped by ABC Records, he went to the radio stations with a vengeance and brought that sucker onto the charts. And we... And it wasn't easy. We're forever grateful we're gonna dedicate this to him tonight. This is I Won't Back Down. So you can hear it there for yourself how much uh, Tom Petty felt about this guy and the credibility. So when I got an opportunity to interview this guy and, and hear some of these stories firsthand, which like I said, he's a very funny guy and these stories are amazing, I was not going to pass up the opportunity. And I didn't know if there was going to be any paranormal aspects when I agreed to do the interview. I just basically decided to ask him uh, at the, at the uh, pre-interview process if there was any paranormal, since this was a paranormal show, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, and that's what we just chose to lead the show off with. So without further ado, this is Mr. John Scott. Guys, this is definitely out of the ordinary from what we would be doing, but I had an opportunity for a special guest, and it was one of those situations where I was going to jump on. I've got Mr. John Scott on the phone with me, and John was a super good friend with Tom Petty, and he was a, a you know a promoter of most of Tom's music. It goes back forty years, and he's got a book out called Tom Petty and Me: My Rock and Roll Adventures with Tom Petty. And when I had the opportunity to get him on, I was like, I know it's not really paranormal related, but I, I've got to interview this guy, being the Tom Petty <laughs> fan that I am. But as it turns out, there's going to be a little paranormal in the show after all, involving this. So first of all. I want to give you a big thank you for coming on, John. Thanks for spending some time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can't uh, wait to tell you some stories and 
and uh, yeah, there's definitely some paranormal things that, that definitely happens, you know. Um, but um, yeah, Tom and I were friends for 40 years, and um, it was a tough loss. And um, um, I still, I still, I really actually, I still haven't gotten over it. I still haven't like processed it, processed it in my brain that he's not here with us. Um, but when I when I um, sat down to write the book, um, right off the bat, uh, after he passed away, I had dreams about Tom. And in one dream about 4 a.m. in the morning, he came to a dream and said, call your book Tom Petty and Me. And I jumped up, went to GoDaddy, 4 in the morning, and typed in TomPettyMe.com, and it was available, and I clicked on it. And then I started writing the next morning. And I think he guided me through so much of this book. Um, mm. So right right off the bat, he told me what to call my book, Tom Petty and Me. And um, I still have those dreams, you know, and probably will forever. Well, since we started off, John, with the paranormal you were telling yeah. me some other stories about uh, like when you would go in to get your your pictures uh, <laughs> put in high res for the book and, and stuff like that. Tell to recreate that for me on on some of the things that happen when you walk into places. Yeah. So when you publish your book, you have to, if you have pictures, you have to put them into a high resolution uh, form. And I had to do that at a camera store who did put all my pictures in high resolution for the book. And I could walk into that store. I must have walked in once a week, twice a week. And I would walk in, the girl would start working on my photos, and a Tom Petty song would come on the radio. And she just looked at me and she said, this only happens when you walk through that door. <laughs> There's not one time that I did went into that camera store. I must have gone in 20 times, I don't know, a Tom Petty song would come on the radio. Like, you know, he he's... He's still guiding me, and um, I think he guided me a lot through this book because I, I didn't take, I didn't have any um, notes or, you know, um, it's all from memory, and I think a lot of the stories that he helped me get through came to my mind that I had forgotten, and um, yeah, I, I'm definitely a believer in that that stuff. Yeah, for sure. John, how did you find out about Tom's death? Well, I was, um, it was a week after the Hollywood Bowl concert, last concert of his life. And um, I was sitting on my back porch and I saw a flash in the TV screen that he had died. And I, I, I jumped up and then something came up and said, no, he's still alive. And, and I remember going to bed and I couldn't really sleep. And the next, when I woke up the next morning, they said he had passed away. And I just remember going to my computer on Facebook and I typed no about a hundred times. No, 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 I just couldn't stop. And um, it's one of those things you just don't even believe could happen. And in a certain way, I had a bad feeling about the tour in the beginning because he, he's not, he wasn't a great flyer. He didn't like to fly a lot. And uh, for some reason, that came into my mind 
before the tour even started. I don't know why it came into my mind, but <clears throat> of course it didn't turn out that way. Thank God. But, but um, yeah, he's he he. I think he guides a lot of people. The fans, I, I, I you know, I talk to the fans a lot, and I hear stories about the same kind of thing that, you know, he he came into my dream or he I was walking in a store and he played a song that was at my wedding. You know, just things like that. That the fan, Tom Petty fans are like no others that I've ever run across in my life. And I've worked with a lot of bands, The Who, Leonard Skinner, Elton John. There are no fans um, more more um, passionate about Tom than any I've ever run across. And that says a lot because you worked with Jimmy Buffett as well, and that's he's he's wanted, I think, about with, when you have fans that are passionate, you know, to follow – everywhere and, and do whatever, you know, kind of like the Grateful Dead and what have you. So I, it's, that says a lot about Tom as a person and as a, as a artist. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I still feel it too. I feel he's guiding my life. So let's, let's go back to the beginning, John. So you were a DJ back in 1967 at WMC FM 100. It was the most powerful rock station in the country you springboarded from there to 1974 and started working for MCA Records as a promo man. And you got to promote a, a, a little band by the name of Mud Crutch. That's Tell me correct. a little bit about Mud Crutch. You know, I'll tell you one quick thing about um, 1964, I believe. I heard a song. I, well, when I was 10 years old, I knew I was going to be a DJ, number one. And... In 1964, I heard Under Assistant West Coast Promo Man by the Rolling Stones, and I thought to myself, that that, that sounds like a pretty cool job. <laughs> um, so um, at our station, we could play whatever we wanted to, and we were just breaking songs, writing artists right and left, and ZZ Top and David Bowie, and so many artists and promotion guys started hanging around our station because they knew we'd play, a, if we got into a, playing a, one of their albums, it would sell. And... Um, I was approached by MCA Records to be, they, th they said, you got a pretty good ear. Why don't you come to work for us as a local promotion man? So I hated to leave radio, but um, I took the job as local promotion man because, <laughs> number one, they made more money than a DJ, and they had an expense account. And I kind of felt like it was the same thing. When I was a DJ, I was turning fans onto me, or the audience onto music. And then when I was a promotion guy, I was turning radio stations onto music. So I kind of felt like it was the same thing. And I, I hated leaving radio, but um, record promotion was was really what I wanted to do. And um, I, uh, I started work in, I believe, 1974 with MCA Records as a local promotion man. And about the first week I was there, they sent Olivia Newton-John to Memphis to promote her new single. And we uh, we had to drive to Nashville. And uh, MCA would send out cassettes of every new band that's coming out that month and so, you, so you could get familiar with them. And Olivia and I were in the car and we put it in and we'd say, that's pretty good. Mm, don't like that one. And then all of a sudden this reggae sounding song called 
Depot Street came on. And we both looked at each other and said, that's a pretty cool song. And she said, but it, the, the band has this crazy, stupid name called Mudcrutch. <laughs> I went, Mudcrutch? But we liked the song. And so I took her to the Top 40 station, and then the next morning I went to the FM station in Nashville, and they added Mudcrutch because they felt the same way I did about Depot Street. And I got a call. I called my boss for the my first time. I got my first ad on a record. Mud Crutch, Depot Street. And my boss said, John, it's only a single. There's no album. It's on Shelter Records. Forget about Mud Crutch. Concentrate on Olivia Newton-John. And I went, okay. And I forgot about Mud Crutch completely. I never knew who they were. I never knew who the song was written by. I never knew who the singer was. So I forgot about it until my first meeting with Tom. But um, that was a little bit down down the road. But um, I worked for MCA as a local MCA promotion man. They transferred me to Atlanta, Georgia, not too long after I'd um, uh, started working. And then they transferred me to Los Angeles, and I believe it was 1975. So I, I climbed up the ladder pretty quick. And I, um, I'm, a, I'm from Memphis, and working in Los Angeles was like a dream come true especially because we were on the back lot at Universal Studios. And that's like, you know, <laughs> it's like a you, you walk outside and you see actors and actresses that you watch on TV. And I mean, I was pulling out of the parking lot one day, one of the first days I was there, and I, I see a uh, Lamborghini behind me, and it's Jack Webb, the guy who was on Dragnet. Yeah. <laughs> like, holy crap. But, you know, it was just one of those things where you could walk out and you could see the Universal Tour, the shark coming out of the water. And um, it was just like, you know, something I never wanted to end because I was working with Leonard Skinner, Elton John, uh, The Who, Golden Earring. Oh, my gosh, Olivia Newton-John, Elton John. So many great artists. And, and we really, I was having a great time and I was doing a good job, I felt. And um, Skinner gave me a gold record at the Universal City Commissary lot that I still have a picture of. And Ronnie Van Zant giving me a big kiss, which is on the cheek, which is not like Ronnie Van Zant, because those guys would fight at the drop of a hat. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, but they were great Southern boys. But um, they definitely had a few problems here and there. But, but um, one day... Uh, in a meeting, the head of promotion, the head of sales, everybody's in a meeting in the president's office of MCA Records. And he ends the meeting by playing some new records. And he says, has anybody heard this Johnny Cougar record? <laughs> and I was the only one to raise my hand because I had listened to it. And I'd liked a couple of songs. And he said, um, which song do you like? And I said, it's called Chestnut Street Revisited. So he puts it on. And 30 seconds into it, he takes the needle off, tosses it in the garbage can. And he said, who the hell would play a song about someone named Johnny Cougar? Stupid, stupid name. We don't like his manager. Uh, his manager was Tony DeFreeze. And when I heard the words Tony DeFreeze, 
it took me back to my radio days because David Boyd um, came to Memphis and his manager was Tony DeFreeze. And um, I got to know David. He came to my house for a party. Um, so anyway, I, I just, you know, went, that's the guy who discovered David Boyd. And after the meeting, uh, the head of A&R, who signed Johnny Cougar because of a couple of demos, said, so you really like this record? I went, you know, I do. There's about four or five songs on there that I really like. He said, would you like to go see him live? And I said, sure. And he said, I said, where do I have to go? And he said, Seymour, Indiana. And I was like, where's that? <laughs> and anyway, they sent me to Seymour, Indiana to see Johnny Cougar. And he said, you don't, if, you, if you like him, don't tell anybody until we talk. Because they're thinking about dropping the kid from the label. And I got to Seymour, and um, it was crazy. It was kind of, there was a big parade going on when I pulled into the town on the main street. Um, baton twirlers, and this wasn't even the holiday day. And it turned out to be Johnny Cougar Day. And I don't know if they did that because they knew I was coming into town or, or what, but um, there was the mayor riding on a float waving and, you know, the... Um, Shriners in their cars, and I'm going, this is crazy. And at the end, there's a limousine with a kid sticking his head up to the back of the limo, and he had a white t shirt on with his uh, sleeves rolled up as a pack of cigarettes. And I heard some kid go, Hey, Cougar, I have, hey, John Mellencamp, you're Johnny Cougar now. Ha 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 ha. And he said, and he said, fuck you. And John turned around and flipped him the bird. And, and he was kind of a, he was known as a kind of a town fighter guy. He would just, you know, whatever. But um, he didn't approve of the name Johnny Cougar. Um, we went to the concert in a National Guard armory. And they put me in the front row. And... I'm going, oh, my God, you know, I can't even really react. And I hear people as I'm walking down the aisle going, hey, there's the MCA guy. There's the MCA guy. And I think it was like 200 of his, of his <laughs> members of his family who were there. I don't know. But um, he came out and just looked straight. He played an instrumental song first, a song I like called Chestnut Street Revisited. And he looked down at me and was like, what do you think now, Mr. MCA guy? And I thought this guy was a superstar. <laughs> and and I went back to the hotel. I met him afterwards and told him, he said, when are you leaving? I said, tomorrow. He said, why don't you wait until Sunday? Come on out to the house or Monday. Come on out to the house and we'll have a barbecue tomorrow. You can stay at my house. And we were staying in a funky 50s motel. And so I said, sure. And I called my boss that night. About, I don't know, 12 o'clock at night. And I said, don't drop this kid. He's a superstar. And he, my boss went, John, what have you been smoking? And I said, no, no, no. Okay, I had I smoked a joint. Okay. But <laughs> this kid is the real deal. And he said, well, well let's, let's talk. I'm, I'm in bed. Let's talk about this when um, you get back Monday. And I went back Monday. And, uh, well, I, the stories about me going over to his house. And he didn't really know. He hated the name Johnny Cougar, and he didn't even know his name was going to be Johnny Cougar until the album showed up at his house, 
and he flipped out and he called his manager. He said, you know, I just thought Mellencamp is a word that's too hard to say. So it's either Johnny Cougar or Johnny Puma. And I picked Johnny Cougar. <laughs> and he hated that. And uh, anyway, we had a great evening with him. And I went back to L.A. and <clears throat> um, decided I would do anything in the world to try to get this kid's record played because I really felt like I knew he was a superstar. And um, I did a few crazy things to get the record played. Um, I rented a live cougar from the Universal Studios casting lot. And we took this cougar in a hand, with a handler and we went to every radio station in L.A. to get pictures taken. And some people were like, uh, no, 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 I'm not taking a picture with a cougar. But <laughs> I pulled into Tower Records parking lot and um, we got the cougar out. We didn't, I forgot to tell Tower we were coming. And about 200 people came, stood behind us when they came out of the out of the um, record store and went, holy crap, there's a cougar out there. But um, anyway, we took the picture and made the trade magazines. And I kept pushing and pushing, trying to get people to play the record. And um, I, I'm going to tell you that story. You can cut this out if you want. But um, I... I um, they kept giving me grief about stop working Johnny Cougar. And it hit me that there's a station in Cleveland, WMMS, that played Love David Bowie, just like we did in Memphis. And I flew there to talk them into playing the record. And first they said, Johnny Cougar, is that a top 40 guy? Is that weird? We don't play top 40 records. And I said, no, no, no. He's like the Midwestern Bruce Springsteen. And they're like, Really? <laughs> Really sure. Uh huh. And so the next morning, we had breakfast with the program director and the music director. And the music director said, his name is Kid Leo. He's on Sirius XM, uh, Little Stevens Underground Garage now. And he said, You know, I kind of like this record Johnny, by Johnny Kilger. And the program director said, But I don't, so we're not going to play it. And I just looked at him and I said, Well, I'll just stay in Cleveland until you. So play, add the record to your playlist. And they kind of looked at each other and started laughing. And um, I haven't told this story to too many people. But anyway, so I just said, okay, I'm just going to sing Cleveland until you add the record. And they said, you might be here for a long time. I said, I don't care. And so the local MCA promotion guy and myself, the next morning went to the morning show, took a copy of the record to the morning DJ, and with a, with breakfast and a copy of the album. And they would look up at you and go, who's Johnny Cougar? Just listen to the record. And we did that breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it, on the evening guy, we would tape a joint on the back of the record. And <laughs> so, so it's been six days that I had been in Cleveland. And my boss is kind of going, um, when are you coming home? And, and the local promotion guy said, I've got an idea. Um, come over to my house tonight and he, I go over there and he comes down with a, with a scrapbook and I'm thinking you know, maybe he's got pictures of the radio station people that nobody wants to see but he opens it up and it's a scrapbook of little plastic bags every bag had stapled to a page that had a, either a gigantic piece of hash or a gigantic piece of pot 
and he had a name, Panama 63, um, whatever. And so he said, I, I think I took a hit or I said, give me some Panama Red 63 or whatever. But, and uh, it was just terrific stuff. He said, we're going to take them out to lunch tomorrow and smoke them out. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to go to a new restaurant and uh, I'm going to get lost. And so we got in the car and it was like a Cheech and Chong car. We were <laughs> smoking pot and, um, um, the program director goes, where is this restaurant? And Dave said, it's around here somewhere. About the time he pops in Chestnut Street, we visited. And the program director turned around to me and said, okay, we're going to add this record, but just go home. <laughs> you know, get out of Cleveland. So I happily flew back to L.A. with uh, the station that added the record. And a few stations around Cleveland added it. But it just wasn't going anywhere, but I just, I just didn't want to stop. And they told me to stop. And I said, I can't stop. I just got one of the biggest stations in America to play this record. And he said, stop. The manager wants a billboard on Sunset Strip because the station added the record. Now, $25,000. And, and I said, I can't stop. And they said, yes, you can. And they said, well, you're fired. So they fired me and walked me out. Um, of that Universal Studios lot to my car and all of a sudden I'm going what just happened and about a month later I got a, I, I, I couldn't find any work in the record business and a month later a guy called me from ABC Records one of the kingpins of um, record promotion Charlie Minor and he asked me if I wanted to accept the job of head of national album promotion for ABC. And I absolutely didn't even ask him what my salary was going to be. And I got there on Monday morning and he showed me around and uh, introduced me to everybody. And he said, this is going to be a great place for you. You just can't do another Johnny Cougar thing. Okay. If we don't like an artist then we're going to drop him, don't get involved. Raise your right hand. You will not get involved with an artist like Johnny Cougar. <laughs> this is what I heard like. Well, I had to raise my right hand. I think I had my fingers crossed behind my back, but because I would go to to a wall for, for you know a band I loved or an artist I loved, and um, I said okay. He took me to my office, and he said you have nothing to do for like three weeks. Um, there's no new rock albums coming out. So just call your the local promotion people and tell them who you are and introduce yourself and call your radio station friends and tell them where you are now. And so I just started doing that. Three days later, I'd go to my closet to uh, get my jacket to go to lunch. And an album falls down in a white jacket. And I picked it up and I pulled the vinyl out and there was nothing on the vinyl. No song titles no nothing, no name of the band. And something told me to sit down and listen to that record. I thought maybe it was just an old record that somebody just tossed away. And I hear rocking around with you and I'm kind of going, wow. Then I hear a breakdown and every hair on my body stood up in goosebumps. And I'm like, holy crap. And I listened to the entire record. American Girl ended side two. And you know, American Girl is one of those songs that just flips you out right away. Yep. 
And um, I put on my headphones to listen to it again to make sure I wasn't crazy. Listened again. It even got even better because Mike Campbell's guitar is flying left to right. Anyway, I took the headphones off and I ran to my boss's office, handed him the record. Who are these guys? And he put it on the turntable. And 10 seconds later, he goes, oh, that's that punk band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. (laughs) Punk band. What do you you mean a punk band? He said, John, look at the cover. This guy's got a black leather jacket on, stringy blonde hair, bullets around his neck. Radio stations have told us it's a punk record. It's been out for eight months. And nothing. They've sold 12,000 copies. And really, only a few stations played the record. And I said, they're not a punk band. They're a rock and roll. This is a rock and roll band. He said, John, here you go doing another Johnny Cougar thing. I said, look, just give me six weeks to try to get this record played. And he said, John, it's been out for eight months. I said, I don't care. Just give me six weeks and I'll stop if nothing happens. And he said, no. And I really, I got down on my knees and begged. I said, just give me six weeks. Because I felt that, you know, (laughs) that first album to me was not like a debut album. It was like one of, you know, one of the band's greatest records. And uh, I started calling radio stations, and a lot of people said, we don't know who that is. A lot of people said, oh, yeah, that, we heard that about eight months ago, and isn't that a punk band? And I'm just like, you know, completely confused. And you know, a few days later, um, one of my best friends happened to move to Los Angeles and to start a radio, an FM radio station there that was going to compete with the other FM station in town. <clears throat> and I took it over, the record over to his house, and um, we did go outside first and got to the point, if you know what I mean. And yeah. <laughs> he came back and I put it down. He sat with headphones on and the record ended and he just turned at me in this glazed look going, this is one of the best effing records I've ever heard in my life. Who are these guys? I told him. He said, I've never heard of them. Are they any good live? And I said, Charlie, I just picked this record up by accident. Three days ago, I have no idea if they're good live or not, but they are playing the whiskey this coming Saturday night. And he said, we're going, right? I went, hell yeah, we're going. I want to see this band live. And so we go to, there's about 10 people. We get the whiskey as the opening. Tom's opening for Blondie. And he comes on at 7 o'clock. We get there about 6.30. It's like 15, 20 people in the whiskey go-go at the time. And they came out, and I'm going, please, God, don't make, don't let this band be a punk band. And they came out and with their own cool look. You know, Tom had a scarf around his neck, and Stan Lynch had this cool look on about him. And um, they got up and they did "Oh Carol," the Chuck Berry song, and just knocked me out right there. And Charlie and I looked at each other. Charlie Kendall and I looked at each other like, "Holy shit!" And then they did "Breakdown," and that blew us off. It just blew us away. And Charlie leaned over and said to me, that record is a hit record. I'm going to start playing it Monday morning, once an hour, every hour. And I am inside doing it. My stomach's doing flips because I, this doesn't happen. An eight-month-old record doesn't. Somebody doesn't say I'm going to start playing it once an hour, every hour. And... Um, Show was over. He did a 35 minute set, no encore. And I went upstairs and I said, I got to find this guy. I want to introduce myself to him. 
And I walked in the door and I said, hi, Tom Petty, I'm John Scott, the new head of album promotion at ABC Records. And he looked at me and said, I don't give a damn who you are. <laughs> we hate ABC Records. They screwed up our career for eight months. They've advertised us in teen magazines and punk magazines. And I said, you know, you're new. Just get out of here. Just leave. And I said, have you ever heard your record on the radio in Los Angeles? And he looked at me and said, hell no, why? I said, well, you're going to hear it Monday morning, once an hour, every hour, on a new rock station called KWST. And he said, just get the get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not sure how much you can edit, edit out of this thing, but. Oh, we're we're good. I mean, look, you know, it's no big secret that Tom uh, Tom definitely had his differences when it came to authority figures in the uh, in the record companies. I mean, you know, right. he's, he's he you know, so I mean, I could I could understand him having that a stance, especially early on. Yeah, and I could tell right away that he'd been beat up by the record record label. You know, just like he, um, people promising him things and they couldn't deliver and. Uh, he hollered up to Stan Lynch, the drummer, and said, hey, Stan, tell this guy, the new guy here, what ABC stands for. And Stan Lynch said, you don't know? I went, no, I just, I've only been to work there for three days. He said, ABC stands for a bunch of cocksuckers. <laughs> and the whole band laughed at me. And Tom said to his roadie, get these two nut jobs out of here. Here's another guy promising me something. No, a station's going to play my record once an hour, every hour. Right, sure. And for some reason, I just turn around and go, Tom Petty, I'm going to break your career wide open. And boy, he just flew at me. <laughs> and I didn't care because I had been living with this album for, you know, like a week or so. I couldn't get it out of my car, my house, my office. That's the only record I was listening to. And so I knew after seeing him and what I had heard, this guy is destined for greatness. And he kept telling me to get out. I started walking out. And again, for some reason, I don't know why, but I turned to him and I said, Tom Petty, my name is John Scott. Every time you hear your record on the radio, you're going to think of me and don't you ever forget it. It was like, just get the f out of here. They walked us out, and uh, we really did. We we kind of Charlie and Charlie Kendall and I were kind of laughing because we knew what was about to happen. And on Monday morning, Charlie said, like he did, once an hour, every hour, and played breakdown. And three days later, he calls me and said, "You won't believe this. Tower Records, the biggest record store in L.A., said people are calling him wanting to know who this band is." And um, they didn't have any copies of it. They they ordered 500 copies of, of an eight-month-old album. And uh, the next day, I get a call from the manager, Tom's, Tom's manager, Tony Dimitrianos. And he's going, you've really pissed off my artist. You said something to him that you know you can't do. Break his career, you know they're getting ready to drop us. And from the label... And I, he said, I want to meet with you. And I met, went and met with him, and we kind of bonded right there. And on Friday, I got a call from Tom, 
and my assistant said, Tom Petty's on the phone. And I'm kind of at that point going, I don't know which way this is going to go. And he, his Southern drawl, and John and my friends are telling me they're hearing my record on the radio. Like you said, are you serious about what you said? You're going to break my career at the time. I'm going to break your career wide open. And he said, I want to meet you. Can you come over to my house? I said, how about tonight? He said, sure. And I just grabbed a piece of paper and scribbled it down. And I'm going over to his house. And got, of course, I've got his cassette player, cassette in my car playing it. And I couldn't wait to get there. We got there and I opened the door. And there's a Confederate flag. And I'm from the South. And he's from the South. And so right away, I knew there was some kind of kinship. And we walked outside and um, decided to smoke a peace pipe. Like, um, if you know what I mean. I got we got you. to the, and <laughs> we started talking. And he asked me about my career, what, what, how I, you know, got in the record business things. And he asked, "Well, I told him I didn't tell him anything about Johnny Cougar though." And I asked him, "I said, have you been in any other bands?" And he said, "Yeah, you never heard of them. They're called Mud Crutch." And that moment I went, Depot Street? And Tom looks at me like, how the hell do you know Depot Street? And we looked at each other for 30 seconds, not saying a word. It was like one of those things where something had just happened for a reason. There was a reason I got fired at MCA. There was a reason I got hired by ABC. And there was a reason why I picked up that record. And... We both, like I said, we're just staring at each other like, and he said, you want to hear some stuff we've been recording? I said, sure. He took me in this, inside his house and played Listen to Her Heart. And the opening guitar looks at that song. I'm like, holy crap. And I asked him to play it about five times, and we left. And I told him again when I'm leaving, don't forget who I am. My name's John Scott. And I kind of, he was like, you know, she asked, okay, I got it. And so um, uh, I went back to the office and told people that station's playing Tom. And everybody's, of course, they're going, John's an eight-month-old record. And all of a sudden, it started to sell. All of a sudden, we sent out 100 albums to every FM station in America because it had been eight months. People said they never, they don't remember it. They didn't, you know, whatever. And I just put a note on there saying, just said, forget the cover, just play the fucking record or just listen to the fucking record. I'm not sure. But anyway, we started getting some people calling up going, hey, you know, that's a pretty damn good album. And all of a sudden, it just hit almost every FM station in America started playing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers Breakdown. And um, we bonded that first night and it never changed for 40 years. And you could say the rest is history, but there's a lot of stuff that happened in between that that I think that happened for reasons. And... Um, um, you know, I can get into a few of the stories, but it happened for a reason. Well, it's not like your paranormal thing. I mean, why would I pick up a record? And people ask me, what would have happened if you hadn't picked up that record? And 
to me, the answer is nobody knows. Because he could have gone back to Florida, he could have he could have been signed by another label, which is probably what might have happened. But he could have gotten it beaten up by the machine. Maybe he would go back to Gainesville. Nobody knew. So let me ask you this: you, it's not really a, a, an ask you; it's more of a statement. You know, you you had made it clear to him. Hey, remember when you hear these songs on the radio? That you know, I was the the reason for that. And obviously, that's something that Tom never forgot because I'm going to play the audio on here from the, from the video. But at his last concert, he actually gave you some very high praise and told the story that they were six weeks from being dropped, and if it hadn't been for you, that they wouldn't basically wouldn't be where they're at. That's not for, that's verbatim what he said, but he basically gave you all the credit for the success that they had. And uh, I thought that was very touching. And you were in the audience, correct, when that was done? Uh, and I had no idea that was coming. I had done an interview on Sirius XM before the show. They were broadcasting live that night. And I basically told the story. And at Tom's memorial, his wife, Dana, came up and told me that they'd gotten into to the limo about 6 o'clock. And, of course, Tom Petty Radio was on. And he said, Wait a minute, they're getting ready to interview John Scott. I want to listen to this. And he, she said he listened. And after it was over, he turned to me and said, everything he just said is the absolute truth. And she said it hit him hard in his heart. And I did the interview, and I didn't want to go backstage because I knew it would be a lot of people back there. I just said, let's just go take our seats to my daughter. I was with my daughter, and we went out and sat down and, he played four songs without really talking to the audience. And that's when he said, a lot of people backstage there, but there's one person I want to dedicate this next song to. His name is John Scott. And he told the story, like you said, that we were about to be dropped and I intervened and, and we want to de- dedicate this next song to him. I won't back down because that's what I, 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 I never back down when with Tom never, and he never backed down either, but, um, and that song just hit me like I, I was sitting there. I think I was crying. I, I couldn't believe it. My daughter was crying because we had no idea that he was going to say that. And um, to me, when I look back on it, that was a gift that he left me. And um, um, I, I'll never, that night will never. I'll never forget that night ever because it was, you know, one of the special moments in your life that just doesn't happen very often. And and he passed away about a week later, correct? One week later. Yeah. He passed away one week later. And, um, of course I was in shock and, um, like everybody else, because Tom Petty's fans, like I said, they're some of the greatest fans in the world. They loved this guy and he loved him back. And, I think one of the reasons that he didn't cancel the tour is because in the beginning he had some hip problems and and um, he hated to disappoint his fans, even though he was in a little bit of pain. And um, I, I saw him in Memphis in, uh, in May of that 2017, and we we were backstage and we hugged each other. And my daughter was there, took a picture, and I asked him how he's doing. He said, "Well, I got a few aches and pains, but nothing's going to stop the show." And um, we went back to our seats, and 
I saw Steve Ferroni kind of pushing, holding Tom up as they go up the stairs. And I didn't, I went, that's weird. But I never thought of anything. But, you know, he got on stage and he just kicked ass like he does every night. I remember when I first saw him every night, he was making history. And nothing gave me any indication there's anything wrong with him. Um, and then I think the day he, he passed away, they told him before that that he had, the hip was not, the fracture was actually broken now. And um, I think, I, I, I don't know why he didn't go to the doctor right away, but I think he just was on a 52-city tour and he was ready to relax and he had medication that was helping ease the pain. And um, he wanted to be alone with his kids, his grand, well, his kids and his grand uh, granddaughter. And um, I, I wish he had gone, but it didn't happen. Um, so um, I still haven't come to terms with it, like I said, and I don't think a lot of his fans have either. He's yeah. like, he's still, I think he still guides a lot of us through life. And uh, I firmly, firmly believe that. Well, I still, I still have dreams about Tom. And I know that uh, I've said, put that on my Facebook page or Instagram or whatever. And I get the same reaction from other people saying, same thing happens to me. So I think he's still out there guiding us. I really do. He guided me through this book, and I started remembering stories that I had never I had forgotten. Like I said, I didn't keep a journal or a diary. But every story in my book is the truth, and um, there's some great moments in the book about Tom. And uh, every every the stories that have never been told, and these pictures in my book have never been seen. And showed a different side of Tom Petty. And actually, I wanted the fans to realize, you know, what it takes for a band to start off and get to the point where they're selling 80 million records. Because a lot of times, 30 seconds of somebody listening to a band's record and their career's over. And it's a sad thing. Um, but that's just what happens. And I wanted to show people there's a lot of things in between that happened that were supposed to happen, happened, and all of a sudden they were playing in front of, you know, 20,000 people every night, 80,000 in London. Um, but that's what I wanted to show in my book, these kind of stories that kind of behind the scenes and... Um, I'm really proud of I'm proud of my book. I'm proud of the way it came out. Um, it's it's really still doing well. Um, I go to the post office every day. I do everything myself. I published it. I was a self publisher, and I, I had talked to a couple of publishing companies, but they wanted basically to take it all my away from me, and I just didn't feel like it was worth it. So um, yeah, I'm kind of the I sign every book, personalize if people want, and I go to the post office, and I mail them, and I go to the post office every day, and I'm just still happy about that. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I'm doing the same thing with my book right now. 
Yeah, well, if you need help, let me know because it was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. And some days you just sit there at the computer and you could, I couldn't type. type. I, couldn't, I couldn't write anything. And then the other days it would just come flowing. And uh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. John, to... share one of your favorite stories from the book with us. One of my favorite stories. Uh, well, early on, um, we were we were in Oklahoma City, and um, no, I'm sorry, we were in New Orleans, and I'll say this is 1978. And Tom's voice had gotten a little hoarse, and we were on a tour bus. And the man, Tom's manager said, hey, why don't you and Tom fly to Oklahoma City tomorrow? Let Tom rest his voice. The, the bus is drafty, and it's sometimes cold. And so we decided to spend the night, and we get up the next morning and head to the airport. And we get to the gate, and the, um, the gate persons uh, the person behind the desk said we're it's a, we're we're on a two hour um that we're behind schedule for two hours so just go get something to eat and we had we had a concert that night in oklahoma city it scared us worried us a little bit but we went sat down ordered some chicken noodle soup and we heard this announcement on the last call for passengers on delta flight blah 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 for Oklahoma City, and we went, last call. And we got up and ran as fast as we could to the, to the gate, and they're about to close the door. And the guy at the gate turns around and said, oh, here are those two bozos we've been waiting for. And Tom looked at me, and he was pissed <laughs> that somebody called him a bozo or called it. So we got on the plane, and people started applauding on the plane like they had been waiting for us, you know. We had the only seats were available were two first-class seats. And we sat down. Well, Tom sat down next to the window, and I was putting my bag up in the luggage department. I mean, luggage, you know, luggage carrier, whatever it is. And uh, about that time, the plane just jerked back, and I fell, and onto the arm of the chair and it, it hurt my back a little bit and um, so Tom said just keep moaning moan oh my back oh my back god dog and everybody knew the plane you know jerked back unexpectedly and and uh, the <laughs> Delta flight attendants came over and they had to give me a form to fill out in case I was injured I filled it out and sent it back in, and they sent me a check for three thousand dollars. Oh wow! They'll never call us two bozos again, ever. <laughs> uh, it's just one of those moments, you know, that yeah, you had to be there, I guess. But uh, there's a few other funny stories in my book. I will tell you that. Um, but um, that, that was one of my one of my funnier moments of, of, um, yeah, I think that was one of the, well, there's a few others that I can tell you about, but maybe people just have to read the book. I don't want to give everything away. What do you miss most about Tom? You know, I miss, I miss Tom's humor. 
he had a fantastic sense of humor. He was a shy guy. He was a Southern kid, and he he um, is very humble. And um, he was just one of the nicest guys in the world. And you just loved hanging with him because he was just such a cool guy. And we would go over to his house and we would sit and listen to music. I'd bring some records over from uh, records I was promoting and he would play us some old, he liked to play, he liked to listen to old uh, songs sort of like the British Invasion really influenced him. The zombies and the birds, of course, really influenced him. And um, so we would just sit and listen to music all the time. That's what we really did. And um, we went to every Thanksgiving, Easter party, Christmas party. That And it was really not a big, you know, it wasn't 100 people. There was just like 40 people, kind of the, the crew and and me and my family. And those were some of the best times of my life. You always look forward to those parties because at Christmas, for example, he, him and his wife, Jane, handpicked out every gift they gave. They didn't give this, just everybody the same thing. They handpicked something you, they thought you wanted, felt you would like. And he gave me a retro 50s uh, radio, which I'm a collector of radios. And um, that was one of the things I loved about him. He was just a real genuine person. And he, he never really forgot people who helped him get to the top. And a lot of people, a lot of bands, you know, they just kind of have that memory loss about how they got to the point where they were famous. But Tom never forgot. And, and that's one thing I really miss about him. I miss his, I miss, uh, I miss going to see him. I, mean, I can't tell you how many concerts I saw in my life. And the first concert after, I, after, after the whiskey was in Santa Cruz, California, a little gymnasium. And there's like 5,000, about 3,000 people there maybe. And he did six encores. I'd never have seen that happen to a band in my life. And he, they went off the stage finally after the sixth encore. And I went backstage and I said, Tom, they're still out there clapping. And Tom said, we don't know any more songs. <laughs> I knew at that point I was witnessing history every night because his motto was kind of, I want the next show to be better than the last one. And I want my next album to be better than the last one. And he was pretty true to his word. You know, um, and he never, like I said, he never backed down. And, you know, there's many stories about him and record companies that um, he just simply would not back down. And that's one thing I really loved about Tom. Um, and in the early days, he um, he would, he would, you know, I, I went to his house one day. I said, hey, there's, there's a... Um, place called Rocketdyne near my house and they're decladding fuel rods and pulling out the uranium and packaging it up and taking it across San Fernando Valley and we went and protested he, Tom and his wife both came, we held up signs and we won the fight, he was kind of our celebrity pro protester and we won the fight, we stopped him because we didn't want trucks going through the San Fernando Valley with uranium 
in them. And uh, they finally gave up, and we stopped him. But he 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 loved those kind of causes, you know that that he felt passionate about. And I really missed that about him. He um, he he did a lot of things like that. For example, um, I think it was 2011. There's a community radio station in Los Angeles called KCSN, and they were just changed to rock music from country and or country and uh, classical music and they they needed to boost their signal and they the guy who was the program director sky daniels had helped tom uh early in his career and he begged tom to come and do a concert to help raise funds to get the station's signal out farther and Tom turned down a million dollar job in New Orleans to do this free concert in 500 seat hall. And he played the first show, of course, sold out like that. And so he said, I'll play a second night for you. And the station raised enough money to get their signal where they, it would, everybody in Los Angeles would hear him. But that's just the kind of guy he was. I mean, you know, he, he, money, million dollar thing didn't matter to him it was helping a friend out and helping a community helping a radio station out um that's another thing i loved about him i mean he did little things like that that just uh, you wouldn't a lot of rock stars wouldn't do i don't think john scott it has been an absolute honor and fun as hell having you on tonight. Tell everybody how they can get a copy of Tom Petty and Me. You can get a top copy of Tom Petty and Me at various locations. Or you can go to my site, tompettyandme.com, and I autograph every book or sign every book and personalize them as well. If you like, there's a box there that had a personalization and um, you can get it on Amazon, Amazon Kindle, and it's an audible, audible version that I did just about come, ready to come out um, in a few days, as a matter of fact. And the thing about personalization that I love, because these fans go, a lot of fans that I around Father's Day, this past Father's Day, would you please sign this to my dad, Bill, who turned me on to Tom Petty when I was eight years old or ten years old. And I got so many of those that just made you realize that music is generational. It's never going to go away. And he, he was probably America's most iconic rock star. He could he could say more in a two two and a half minute song than you know uh, anybody that I know that just hit home and made you feel like he was speaking to you. But, uh, yeah, TomPettyMe.com, um, that's where I personalize every book, but also Amazon, Amazon Kindle. And uh, it's been fantastic talking with you, and um, I, I'm, I'm so honored to be on a show that's really not a music show, but there are some paranormal things that happened in my life like that. Well, I'd like to be able to get you on some other time just to talk about some of your other experiences because I bet you've got some awesome stories, you know, with dealing with bands like Skinner and, and 
the Who and Elton John. I, I, I'm sure you have other stories. I, I, I never thought we were going to hear an, an Olivia Newton-John story today. So there you go. Uh, I couldn't believe I was in the car with Olivia Newton-John. To be honest with you, she was a cute, well, nice, personable woman. I was, anyway. was going to say, you said something earlier about the the, the record company saying you need to focus on Olivia Newton-John. I'm, I'm telling you, in 1974, I would have had no problem focusing on Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story uh, before we go, if you have time. Sure. Um, I had to go pick uh, Olivia came into town, and I had a limo pick her up, and I was at the, it was a Holiday Inn they put her up at. And, uh, boy, I saw her, and she was like, gosh, man, she is beautiful and very talented, of course. And we went to the room, and it was like a hot August day, and it was like 106 degrees in Memphis that day. And and she asked me if we had time before to go to dinner with the radio station, if she had time to take a quick swim. And I said, sure, go ahead. I'll just sit here and read trade magazines or something. And she comes out and is smoking hot, kind of an Australian bikini. And I'm going, holy crap. And she walks out the door and she goes, oh, no, no, oh, no. And I'm going, what's wrong? So she said, I dropped one of my contact lens. And so we go down on the, looking for this contact lens. There's a shag carpet. And, and all of a sudden, I turn up and I'm staring at right in her, right in her butt. And I'm going, you know, this is going to be a pretty good job. I'm going to like this job, I think. I mean, there's nothing, you know, nothing happened about, you know, but um, we found the contact lens. But okay. um, she was a wonderful woman. But yeah, I love your concept of what you're doing. I really do. Well, I appreciate that. Because you're a paranormal and a music fan. That's wonderful. Oh, and they go, we've done several episodes on rock and roll and the occult. So we've talked from everything from Elvis and some of the stuff that happened, you know, in his life afterwards and. You know, we've talked obviously the Zeppelin curse and uh, Robert Johnson and you name it. We've we've covered it on the show. So oh, I love that. I love that. I can't wait to hear it. All right, buddy. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll post all your links. And like I said, I'll get you on again sometime here in the future. Oh man, my pleasure. I, I love talking to you, and thank you for, so much for having me on your show. Well, there you go, guys. Like I said, it was uh, very little paranormal in it, but I, you know. People like myself rarely get opportunities to speak to someone of, of his stature, and uh, I thought it was awesome. So I'm working on some other music interviews in the future, and uh, like I said, I'll throw them on as bonuses, and if you don't like that kind of thing, you don't have to listen to it, but I thought uh, most people would get a kick out of this. So thank you guys, and I'll talk to you later. <laughs>